Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast where I get to interview the musicians, songwriters, producers, and engineers who created some of my favorite records, many of them in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. But best of all, I also count them all as my friends. Today, I'm very thrilled to have David Hood as my guest. David Hood is the bass player of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, also known as the Swampers, and one of the four owners of the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. I've been fortunate to work with David in the recording studio, but also on selected shows with the Muscle Shoals All-Stars, at places like Lincoln Center in New York and the Pareto Soul Festival in Italy. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for being my guest. Let me start in the beginning. What are some of your earliest musical memories? I always loved music, and my father was a music fan and played the radio and his 78 RPM records quite a bit. And uh, so he liked big band music. He liked the Mills Brothers. He liked um, um, classical music. And that, so this, my interests are varied from early age. And also at the church we went to here in Sheffield, uh, First Presbyterian Church, uh, the, the music there influenced me. There was an organist there who was really good. And I would... I would kind of just drift away listening to that music when I was supposed to be listening to the, the Word of God, I guess. But uh, music has always taken me places. And uh, I uh, took piano lessons very unsuccessfully in the fifth grade. I, I just didn't want to stay inside and practice. And uh, later, I wanted to be in the high school band. And usually when you get in the band, you start in junior high school. And for some reason or another, I didn't sign up in junior high school to do it. So when I finally, I've been a late starter my whole life so far. And uh, when I finally got into the high school band, I took private lessons from the band director for about a year and got in uh, in the 10th grade, which is behind everyone else but uh and of course they wanted to treat me like a freshman or something and make me go through the belt line and uh, you know all that kind of stuff that you're not supposed to do anymore but uh i wasn't having it since i was already a sophomore and i, I played trombone in the school band uh and really loved it loved especially the concert band part where you didn't march but you just played uh music uh 
I really enjoyed that, and I, I think a lot of that has carried over into my career today and, and playing with other people in a band, uh, ensemble situation. The trombone plays a supportive role quite a bit, and I, I adapted that to the bass guitar. I started playing the bass. I, I think I first saw my, my first bass probably when I was about 15 years old, which is pretty late. Uh, for most musicians, but I never even knew what one was. I was watching bands play at what we call the Naval Reserve, which is uh, the second location of uh, Muscle Shoals Sound, big building like a uh, armory, except it was for the Navy. And people would rent that on weekends and have uh, bands play. And I would go watch Hollis Dixon and the Keynotes and the Del Rays, which Jimmy Johnson's band, and the Mark V, which was Jerry Kerrigan, David Briggs, and Norbert Putnam, and Marlon Green. I'd go watch these bands, and here I'd be one of those kids that stood up front watching the players. And uh, I kept hearing doom, 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 doom. And I thought, what's, what's making that noise? Because I'd see the, what I thought were two guitars, and I finally figured out that one of the guitars was bigger, and it was a bass guitar. And uh, thinking that I was 15 years old before I ever knew what one was is pretty wild because I, I bought one uh, at age 18 and started playing. And by age 22 or 23, I played on a gold record, which is kind of wild. I started late, but then went fast, I guess. Uh, that's my beginnings, I, I guess you could say. Uh, I always loved music and wanted to be part of it, but didn't. it took me a while to find where I should be. Yeah, and even prior, you got hired to play trombone on a few sessions, I guess, yeah. including I'm Your Puppet by The Purifies and Never Loved the Man yes. by Aretha. Yeah, I, at that time I was playing uh, the bass, the bass guitar or whatever I could play just to get on a recording session because I, I was really, I liked recording rather than playing live right from the beginning. And uh, it was a, the band I had played in, uh, The Mystics with Terry Woodford. Uh, we had a run of about four years, but then everybody was graduating for, from college and getting regular jobs. And uh, I was not graduating from college and I already had a regular job because I was working at a tire store at my, for my father. I wanted to continue playing but stay in town, and recording was the way to do it. So I started hanging around fame, and I would shake a tambourine or, or play the bass or play the trombone or anything they would they'd let me do to be part of the recording, early recording scene around here. Yeah, and uh, Terry Woodford and the Mystics did... 45 called I Could Cry and Where Is My Little Girl is that was that one of your earliest recordings yeah sessions? Where Is My Little Girl uh, Terry's father paid uh, the money to go in the studio and record uh, that and we hired uh, Rick and at Fame and went in and cut Where Is My Little Girl and um, I, I forgot what the other side was but it might have been I Could Cry but Where Is My Little Girl was a regional hit and we we Use that to get gigs for probably two or three years locally, and uh, it was on the charts a little bit around here. It was a really, really bubblegum sounding thing. Uh, and what was funny on it is the, the guy who played drums normally with the band played guitar on that song because he knew how to finger pick and it had a 
part was a finger picking part and so he played the drums and uh, um, Larry Hamby who was our regular guitar player would uh, I'm sorry he played the guitar on that and Larry Hamby who was our regular guitar player played drums when he'd do that and while we were doing all that I would put I would get on the shoulders of Terry Woodford and that was about it. We didn't do any somersaults, but we that was our bit of showmanship, switching off instruments and getting on somebody's shoulders. And that, that that's what got me to this point today, is riding on somebody's shoulders. But uh, it was a pretty good record, uh, but very, very bubblegum sounding, Where Is My Little Girl. What were you listening to when, when you started out playing bass? Is there anybody in particular well, uh, I was I loved uh, I liked rhythm and blues music right from the start, and I was listening to uh, Jimmy Reed and Ray Charles and Bo Diddley and a lot of the R and B artists. Even though I didn't really know they were R and B, uh, the reason for this uh, we had a radio station here, W L A Y A M, and they played everything. And you'd one you'd play a country song, then they'd play a rhythm and blues song, then they'd play a play a pop song and like that all day and so my influences were really varied I, I was listening to everything but my favorites usually ran toward the rhythm and blues music but uh, WLEY was a big influence in my career early on and I think it was for a lot of the musicians around here because they played everything and not just one style of music yeah so when you started getting called to do sessions playing the bass, where some of the other musicians, mainly Jimmy Johnson, Roger Hawkins, and Spooner Oldham, Junior Lowe, who were part of the the players who were part of the rhythm section when you got some of your earliest when I When I first started playing, Junior had been playing bass. He switched to guitar. Uh, Spooner was playing keys at that time. Um, Roger, of course, was playing drums, and Jimmy was either rhythm guitar or sound engineer on a lot of the things we did. And later, uh, Eddie Hinton moved to town. I think this was about 1966. And not long after that, Spooner wanted to move to Memphis to follow. Dan Penn had been uh, writing with, with Spooner quite a bit, and Dan moved to Memphis, so Spooner decided he was going to move to Memphis. And we started our search at Fame for or keyboard player to replace Spooner. And we uh, tried Marvell Thomas, who is Rufus's son, and we tried a couple of other players, and then we tried Barry Beckett. And Barry uh, seemed like the one who would, uh, the one that fit in the best for one thing, but also he was willing to move here. Uh, he was originally from Birmingham, but uh, had been living in, in uh, Pensacola, Florida. But we talked him into moving here, and under the condition that he would learn to play more black uh, style of music, because that's what we were doing at Fame at that time. We were playing a lot of rhythm and blues, and we felt that Barry needed to learn how to play more rhythm and blues style piano. So he he did, and I had to do the same thing. I, I when I started when I after. Uh, Warm and Tender Love, which is Percy Sledge's follow-up to uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, I started getting calls because that was a gold record. And uh, I thought, well, gosh, I'm going to have to learn how to play other than the things I'd been playing. So I bought a bunch of stacks and Motown records, and I would sit and I would lis listen to the 
bass parts that Duck or James Jamerson were playing and got a lot of my style from what they were doing because I really didn't know what to play before that. I knew I played in bands, but I didn't know what a chorus was or what a bridge was or a verse. And I had to learn that you played one thing for one part and another thing for another part. And uh, so that was my music, I guess, lessons was listening to James Jamerson and Duck Dunn and a few other rhythm and blues players. Yeah, you mentioned Percy Sledge and a lot of Percy stuff was recorded at Queen Ivy's studio. Right. Um, so you worked over there a lot too? Yes, at the, in the beginning of my career, I was doing a lot of hanging around. Like I said, I'd play trombone or bass or whatever they need, either free or very inexpensively for whoever. And uh, when they called and wanted me to play on uh, Warm and Tender Love or the follow-up to When a Man Loves a Woman, I was really surprised because Junior had played that. Uh, and I thought, well, why not use him again? But I think Junior was wanting to switch the guitar. And uh, for some reason, Marlon Green and Quinn Ivey, who were uh, Percy's producers, called me to be on that session. And it was uh, kind of coincidental. It was the last night, May 14th, I think, was the last night that the Mystics played. And then I recorded with them May 15th. 1966 so it's like I went from one thing to the other just overnight and uh, of course when the record came out and it was a hit and it would would have been because of being a follow-up to uh, When a Man Loves a Woman I was getting calls to play and I, so I really had to get on it to learn how to play with Rod because Roger and Jimmy and the rest of them were a little bit further down the road than I and my and my musical development. Yeah. And so over the next few years, you guys were very prolific over at Fame. And yeah, and at, and at Quinn Ivy's studio. We did a lot of work at both places and, uh, and even would go to Nashville some and record. Uh, we were, we, we were, were really, really busy when I look on my diaries and see what we were doing. We, we recorded quite a bit. Yeah, and then a lot. I, I believe you told me that one of the reasons that you guys eventually moved on from fame was because of all the different places you were able to work, and I guess the the situation would. Rick wanted to have you work exclusively for for him at Fame. Yes, he uh, he was starting a new label uh, with Capitol Records, and he wanted to make the rhythm section exclusive to fame. And at, at that time, we were working with all kinds of people and really having fun doing, working with the different kinds of music and things. And that would have limited us to just working with him. Uh, we, we liked working with Rick, but it, it was just, we didn't want to not be able to do the other stuff. Uh, we were happy working with Rick. It's just when we told him that, it, that we weren't going to be part of his exclusive deal, uh, it sort of ended our deal, and that's when we were able to borrow the money and 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 buy uh, what is now or what it, what would become uh, Muscle Shoals Sound. It was already a studio. It was Beavis Studio. A fellow named Fred Beavis put it together. It was a four-track studio, and um, Fred 
Fred soon learned that he really didn't know what to do with the studio, and so he would approach Jimmy and Roger about buying it. Jimmy and Roger knew that they needed to have a complete rhythm section in order to make it work, and so they approached Barry and I, and so we became studio owners. owners. And uh, we, in our original agreement, we said, all right, if people want to record with us, uh, they're going to have to come record at our studio. And that was, a, a, I think, a, a good thing for us. And I think it was really a good thing for Muscle Shoals in general because that meant there were two or three studios working instead of just one. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great thing for us to move and go out on our own. And I don't think it really hurt Rick as much as he thought it did because he was producer of the year the next year. Uh, so he continued on. Yeah, and besides your individual talents as musicians, what did each of the four of you contribute to to Muscle Shoals Sound? What were your, I guess, your jobs? Yeah, we had we shared the running uh, owning a business that was bigger than we had realized. But Jimmy was more or less since he had experience running a studio with Rick. Uh, Jimmy was the, I guess you'd say, the studio manager. Uh, Barry was going to be the head of our production company that we were starting. And uh, Roger and I were just the Indians, I guess. We, we uh, I later took over the booking of the studio. And uh, we knew early on that we were going to need a publishing company because we saw there was a, a potential to get songs recorded. All the people that were, were coming into the studio nearly everyone needs a song. And uh, so thanks to Jimmy Johnson's uh, experience at uh, fame in the publishing business, we formed our publishing company and uh, we would hire writers to come and uh, write songs for some of the artists that we were working with. And uh, that was really how we got in business, I guess, uh, one of the ways uh, in order to borrow the money from Atlantic Records to start our studio we agreed to give them half of our publishing so uh, it was a uh, it all each thing helped the next thing and uh, like we couldn't have done it without the help of Atlantic Records but we had paid Atlantic Records back not only in paying uh, paying the note we worked cheap for them uh, cheaply as musicians we gave them a good deal on studio time and we gave them half of our public publishing which Sounds like a pretty good deal to me for them. And it was okay for us because it got us started. Yeah. So besides the four of you, who were some, you mentioned the songwriters, who were some of the other kind of people who completed the puzzle there early on? Yeah, well, we knew early on that we would need, uh, Jimmy didn't want to be the engineer. He wanted to be rhythm and guitar player and so we got Marlon Green to be the head engineer at our studio. Uh, Eddie Hinton was in town by that time so we got Eddie to be our first lead guitar player and uh, we soon you know after a little bit started finding people to run our publishing company. Uh, Diane Butler later became uh, ran our publishing company and uh, Carol Little later Carol Buckins was our main, um, I guess, office person. Uh, I hate to say secretary because she said, did so much more than that, but she ran our studio as far as the, the 
keeping the books and all that. And Diane Butler ran the publishing company. And we had other musicians that would help us too. Uh, sooner or later, uh, Clayton Ivey was one who played extra keyboards. Uh, later, Randy McCormick came in and he played. Uh, it is. It has always been more than just the four of us. It was. We always needed other people to help us, and they all played a big role in our success. Yeah, and for many years, you told me that you pretty much did an album a week. You you were very prolific during that time. Yeah, we we tried to stay booked up as much as we could, and uh, we made. Uh, it, uh, I mean, we had to put the, our studio survival at right at the top of everything, even over wives and family and stuff like that. We any time that we had something booked, we were there, and uh, a lot of times it, it was back to back. We'd have a four or five days with one artist, and then another four or five days with another artist, and then on and on and on uh, for quite a while. And we'd, we'd, after a while, we realized we need to take a little time off every now and then. So we'd take a week off at Christmas and a week or so off in the summertime just to kind of uh, maintain the studio, for one thing, but also for our heads. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people obviously know about Paul Simon, Bob Seger, and all the big names. And I would like to, to mention a few records, too, that might not be necessarily the greatest hits, but are certainly some of my favorites. But before I do that, I can't get around asking you about the Staple Singers because the B Altitude album is probably my favorite album of all time. It's one of my favorites. And uh, it was kind of, it's, I think we've had a, a, a great amount of luck in things when uh, after we started working, uh, Atlantic was our biggest client, and we really depended on Atlantic for our, our business. After a while, uh, Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd and some of the Atlantic people were, had been recording quite a bit at, at Criteria in a studio in Miami, and they had homes down there, and so they wanted us to move down there and be the rhythm section down there. Well, we... By that time, we had been at uh, our studio on Jackson Highway maybe a couple years. We didn't want to leave. So when we told Atlantic that we didn't want to move to Miami, they started cutting their artists other places. And at the, right after that, Booker T and the MGs decided they didn't want to be the house band at Stax. And so all of a sudden, we started getting the rhythm section work from Stax. And uh, so... Atlantic pulls out, Stax moves in, and pretty soon we were booking back-to-back -back with Stax artists, and uh, Mavis and Johnny Taylor and uh, some of the other Stax artists uh, we were recording with, and they brought the Staple Singers in. Stax had recorded one album with them, and uh, it was this wasn't really a great album. It, uh, it was uh, Duck and... Al Jackson and uh, Cropper and all them playing on it, but you could tell their minds were on something else a little bit. It wasn't a very successful album, so Al Bell decided he was going to bring the staples here and try to go for a, a more uh, pop-friendly version of the staple singers. Uh, first album we cut was the one that had Heavy Makes You Happy on it. 
and it was a pretty good hit. But when they came back to record uh, uh, the altitude, the altitude, uh, I think all the pieces fell together. It it had just enough pop influence, but still kept the uh, rhythm and blues uh, influence and uh, and. The staple singers were always going to have that great gospel feel. So it was just the perfect situation, I think. And it was, a, it was one of my favorite albums as well, a really good album. Uh, the Staples, early on, would not do any kind of lover cheating kind of song or any kind of dark material. They always wanted uplifting stuff. And that's the basic basis of uh, the altitude, which is defined by be high or on yourself, and they did Respect Yourself, and I'll Take You There. They did all these uplifting songs, and it's a great album. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, and another Stax hit that was cut here that I guess not that many people know about is Luther Ingram's If Love News Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. Yeah. That had Pete Carr playing some excellent yeah, guitar it, on it. That was a great record, and we were really on a roll with the Staple Singers and the Stax artists at that time. And uh, Stax had a man who uh, worked with them named Johnny Baylor, and he was, I guess you could describe as a, a enforcer. He was a, a, I think, had some black gangster type uh, background. And uh, Stax hired him to come in and collect money for them, for them from people who would not pay and things like that. And he worked his way in. Pretty soon he was producing records uh, with them. And Luther Ingram was the artist that he brought down. And uh, Johnny Baylor and some of his cohorts came in with Luther. And I think they must have thought they had to intimidate us to cut a hit record because they came in and just more or less threatened us that, well, we're going to cut a hit record here. And we were going to cut a hit record anyway as best we could. But uh, it was kind of a funny scene. One of the guys was a, uh ex-prize fighter, and he dropped down in, on the floor in the studio and started doing one-arm push-ups and just looking at each one of us trying to intimidate us and that was not necessary because we were going to do the best we could anyway but we all I guess instead of being intimidated were kind of amused by that but we did cut a great record that uh, if loving you is wrong is I guess the biggest hit that Luther ever had and it was a really big record I still hear it quite a bit on stations that play that kind of music and it was uh, it was remarkable the guitar in it was great there were there were a lot of really good parts of that record that just were came off the top of our head uh we were really on a roll we as much as we could we were the producers on those records even though johnny baylor would tell you otherwise <laughs> yeah so i mentioned earlier i'd love to talk a little bit more about certain records that might have not been the, the biggest hits but they're in my opinion some of the best and i know one of them we shared it opinion and certainly J Jamie Johnson it's one of his favorites and that's when Arif Mardin came down to cut an instrumental album right. it came out as a glass onion and that had you on it that had the sweet inspirations on it I believe Eddie Hinton Eddie Hinton King Curtis's horns yeah it was a great uh, record uh, when we first started working with Atlantic after we got uh, Muscle Shoals sound uh, the first artist for Atlantic was Cher, 
and the producers on that were Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd and Arif Mardin. And Arif would come back and produce some other people, and he had the idea that uh, Arif was a great arranger as well as a producer, and he got the idea that he wanted to cut this instrumental album uh, recording songs that were popular at that time. And so that was Glass Onion, which uh, is a Beatles tune off the, I believe, the White Album. And uh, we cut a couple of Rolling Stones records, uh, songs, and some other things. It's an instrumental album, mostly, with some vocal, uh, not really lead vocal, but vocal uh, on it. And it was a really good record. I, I don't know if it was a hit. I don't think it was a hit, but it was a, something I was very proud of. And Eddie did some. Eddie Hinton did some great guitar on it, but he also did some weird vocal sounds on it. I believe on uh, "Sympathy for, for the Devil. Devil," he did all these kind of sounds. It was a fun record. Yeah, and another one I love is King Curtis did an album called "Get Ready," and it's it's all of you plus Cornell Dupree played on on it too. Right, and uh, it's an instrumental album. Uh, and you even got some songwriting credits on it as well. Yeah, it, 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 I wasn't used, to, I don't know if any of us were really used to doing that kind of thing, but uh, King Curtis would come down and uh, he'd have a rhythm section, and he, of course he could play. He was a wonderful saxophone player, but he would have no songs, so we would just sit in the studio and start recording stuff, uh, not necessarily like a jam, but we'd come up with an uh, idea for a, a groove of some sort, and then he'd come back and put his sax on it, and, uh, and he did bring uh, Cornell, and Cornell came several times, I think, but uh, with King Curtis, he was in King's band. And uh, it, I, I still get royalties from that, from my song, songwriting, which I really didn't do very much songwriting. We would just come up with bass lines and things, and uh, King would uh, <laughs> play the uh, saxophone on it. But uh, we would take, we would share the songwriting credits. So uh, I think Barry's the songwriter on a couple songs and I am on another one and Roger is on another one and Jimmy is on another one sort of like that and uh, I still get like 50 cents every now and then for that in the mail yeah somebody else that came down and did quite a huge project with you was uh, Leon Russell and Danny Cordell for Shelter Records how did that connection come about we, gosh, I'm not really sure how it came about. We had worked with Denny Cordell on several things. Uh, Denny Cordell was an Irishman. He's, I guess, his stardom, if he has any stardom, came from writing Whiter Shade of Pale uh, by Procol Harum. But uh, he was a producer. Uh, he and uh, Chris Blackwell worked quite a bit together. But uh, he became a partner with uh, Leon Russell, for Shelter Records in uh, Tulsa, and uh, they were at first looking for places to record. And I'm not really sure who got them to come here. It might have been Marlon Green. I, I don't know where the the first connection was, but uh, Denny is really the one who named us the Swampers. Uh, he put uh, on the, one of the Leon Russell records, he had the Tulsa band on part of the record, and then he had us on the other part of the record, and he called us the Muscle Shoals Swampers. And uh, that was what uh, the Leonard Skinner guys heard, 
and that's when they decided to put that in uh, Sweet Home Alabama. So we didn't intend to be the Swampers, but we became the Swampers. We were always the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section officially, but Swampers is a good one. <laughs> yeah. So you mainly worked in the studio all those years, but then in the early 70s, traffic came to Muscle Shoals Sound to record, and they recruited you to join them on the road too. How did that come about? Well, we, we had been recording with uh, Jimmy Cliff uh, for Chris Blackwell, and uh, when they would bring Jimmy Cliff here, this was pre-Bob Marley or any of the, the reggae uh, period, uh, they would bring Jimmy Cliff here and they would try to get us to make him more like American soul singer. In other words, take some of the Jamaica out of him, uh, which I thought was crazy because he was a great songwriter and all his grooves were re really good. We, we loved working with Jimmy Cliff. But uh, during this time, uh, traffic had... Uh, recorded oh and we'd also been working with uh jim capaldi who was uh, one of the key members of traffic uh they uh, traffic had recorded low spark of high hill boys but they were having problems with uh rick gretch and jim gordon who were the uh, uh the rhythm section the rhythm section bass player and drummer in in traffic at that time uh i think a little substance abuse and just different things it was getting where they couldn't really work with them anymore. So they needed a rhythm session. And uh, they had heard uh, our work with Jimmy Cliff and heard the work that we had done with uh, Jim Capaldi and thought, well, we might be a good fit to go out and promote the Low Spark album. So they came to us and uh, we rehearsed, I think, two, maybe three days, the Low Spark stuff and a bunch of other traffic stuff and then hit the road. And uh, the first night we played, <laughs> was at the uh, Yale Fieldhouse in, uh, in uh, New Jersey. Where is Yale? Wherever, the, uh, no, New Haven, Connecticut. Anyway, we played there and we were downstairs waiting to go on stage. We had not yet played with traffic. I had a little chord charts on a tiny piece of paper and we were trying to remember these songs which were kind of strange songs for us, but we were downstairs in the dressing room and we hear this big, roar of the crowd so I go up the steps and look out and the crowd is just it's packed in that place and they're cheering the frisbee and none of us had ever even seen a concert like this it was a huge rock concert but we go up on stage and start playing and I realized I can't see my chord charts because of the lighting and the on stage uh it was it was chaotic for the first several songs and we at our first break uh they play uh, Rainmaker, uh, and uh, it's a song that was just Chris Wood, Jim Capaldi, uh, Steve Winwood, and Rebop, and no bass and drums on it. And so we, Roger and I get off the stage. Roger does not want to go back on stage because he's just about freaked out. But they do, we, they, we do go back on stage, and we eventually get where we can play with traffic. But at first, it was really hard for... Um, a band used to re recording three and four minute songs in the studio to play with something like that. It was so loud and it was so, uh, just everything was different. We, it was very hard for us to go from the studio situation to do that, but we got it. Uh, probably after a week or so, we, we were doing pretty good. And so they agreed to uh, the next year to come and record a shootout at the Fantasy Factory with us. And uh, we did another, 
another American tour and another uh, European tour and a and, uh, tour of Great Britain. And uh, it all worked pretty good uh, with them. But after that, I think they trafficked the powers that be, probably Steve Winwood, thought it was too big. Uh, I, I've read reviews from that time, and they, everybody in the reviews said it was the best that traffic ever sounded. And it was really good, but it was big, because by that time we had Barry switching off on organ and piano and when Winwood was playing guitar. And uh, it was, it, and then Roger was playing drums. Capaldi was playing drums. It was crazy. I mean, have, having two sets of drums and all this stuff, it really got big and much bigger than what traffic originally intended to be. So we parted ways after that. They kept being traffic, and we kept being Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. So is the very first tour, was that just you and Roger? Yeah, the first tour was just Roger and I, and Jimmy went to do front of house sound. And Barry went to California and just uh, did sessions out there. And the way we got them to pay us that first time is we got them to rent the studio, but paying our studio time so we could pay our salaries for uh, the, our staff. And uh, they our, our pay, as far as musicians, was based sort of like musician session musician pay and it wasn't nearly enough we we didn't realize that because we had no idea what kind of money those people made but uh i was told later that they paid for us in like the first two nights for the whole month tour but the next year we we got paid more realistically i think it was a great experience too because i had never really seen I never really traveled like that around the country or around in Europe, and I'd never seen big concerts like that. So it kind of gave us the the other side of the story. We were always working in the studio, and we didn't know what people did with the music after it left us. And that kind of gave us, uh, uh, all right, so that's what they do with it when they leave. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about the, you know, the session playing, but. At Muscle Shoals Sound, I guess towards the second half of the 70s especially, you started producing some records. You did the Smith, Perkins Smith album by yourself, and then with Jimmy you did a couple Jackson Highway albums, a couple Blackfoot albums, and a really cool album, and I know I shared that opinion with your son Patterson. That's the Maggie and Terry Roach album, Seductive Reasoning. Yes. How, was that a natural progression for you? Well, I, I wasn't really interested in being a producer that much, but Barry was starting to produce, and Roger was producing a little bit with Jimmy, and then later on, Roger and Barry were producing. It was like everybody was pushing me to produce, and I was still trying to learn how to play the bass. I was not hadn't really thought about producing, but uh, they coaxed me into doing it. So Smith Perkins and Smith uh, was my... Actually, it was my second attempt at production. I, I did a, something called the Great American Middle Class with uh, Loris, uh, vocalist Laura Struzik and another guy whose name I have unfortunately forgotten. But it was pretty good, and I thought, well, gosh, I, I think I can do this. So the Smith-Perkins-Smith thing, uh, it was uh, Steve Smith and uh, Tim Tim Smith, they had they were writers for our publishing company, and we saw the songs were pretty good, uh, but were missing something. And uh, they at the time had been writing with a guy named Charles Feldman, 
who now works for BMI up in New York. Up in New York. Charlie. But Charlie was a, a, a songwriter, but not really cut out to be a rock and roller. And so he dropped out of the group, and they brought in uh, Wayne Perkins to be the, the guitar player. So it became Smith Perkins Smith. And it was kind of a tough situation. It was a really real learning experience for me because I was having to deal with two brothers who had gigantic egos and had sibling rivalry. And uh, Wayne was a very gifted guitar player, but wasn't really really ready to settle down and focus on the studio that much. Uh, but uh, I had... I had delusions of becoming George Martin working on that. I worked so hard on it. I lived that album for about a year or more, uh, trying to get it together. And finally, it did come out. Uh, Island Records t took it up. And the first thing they did was take Smith Perkins Smith to England and start cutting another album with them. So that kind of shut me out of that loop there, working with them. But they they, the same problems I had with them, they continued to have, and the group broke up not too long after that. But it was a learning experience, as was uh, working uh, with Jimmy on uh, Blackfoot and later Jackson Highway. Uh, I, Jimmy was my teacher, and I really had less input as a producer on that because Jimmy was such a good producer. I would just sort of stand there and nod and would let the band do whatever they did. Uh, but the the Roach sisters, Maggie and Terry Roach, uh, Paul Simon, Paul had been uh, uh, teaching a class at a university in uh, New York, and Maggie and Terry went to the songwriting class, and uh, he, Paul saw that they had some talent and, and tried to cut. He put them on one of his songs that uh, we had recorded, and then he started producing a song with them. And uh, he spent, I think, most of his budget, so he wanted to finish what would be the album on them, and he, he brought them to Jimmy and I. I think Jimmy saw pretty soon that uh, it was not something that he really cared for a whole lot. They were, they were another couple of siblings that were hard to work with, and somehow I, I ended up with the whole project. But uh, it was really good. I enjoyed working with them, and uh, uh, Maggie unfortunately just passed away this past year but i still stay in touch with uh, terry roach i'm proud of the work that i did with them it was it was um i think some good stuff they were great artists it was kind of the wrong time for them as well i, I think when we finished the record and put it out then they decided they didn't want to do that anymore and so again i was something i worked so hard on uh was just sort of dropped by the wayside and i think ultimately that maybe decide, well, I'm not sure I want to be a producer. <laughs> yeah. Um, towards the end of the 70s, you guys partnered with Capital, Capital Records and had Muscle Shoals Sound Records. How did, was that Capital approaching you, or how, how did that come about? We were working with uh, uh, a manager of some of the artists we worked with, um, whose name escapes me right now, and he would probably shoot me if he knew that. But uh, uh, he was pushing for us to get a record label together, and uh, he somehow found the deal with Capitol Records with Jimmy and, and us. And uh, it was uh, Levon Helm and uh, Russell Smith 
and Lenny LeBlanc and um, several other artists that we were going to, Bonnie Bramlett was one of them that was supposed to have been on that. There were several artists that, that we were going to record. And uh, it was a good, I, I think a could have been a good thing. It just, it was at the wrong time. It was right when uh, disco was starting to be the big, the big thing. And we were cutting uh, more, I guess you'd say, rock acts. And it was just the wrong, wrong thing, I think. There were some good records. We, I think uh, the stuff we did with Russell and Lenny and Levon, it was all really good stuff. It just seemed like the wrong time with, with Capital. You mentioned Levon and that album he cut, he, or he actually cut one and a half albums right. down here even. And I know he continued coming down here. Would you mind talking a little bit about him and about maybe you guys' friendship and what he brought to the table? We, we, were, we were all big fans of he and the band. And uh, by that time, the, uh, the band had broken up and Levon was wanting to continue working as a solo artist. And he was even talking about not playing drums and just being the guy out front. And we had uh, Duck Dunn for the first album that Levon did. Uh, Duck Dunn and some other guys from Memphis were working with Levon and brought him down. And we had a good uh, situation with Levon. We saw we could work with him very well. But Levon didn't want to play drums. He wanted Roger to play. And, of course, Roger was playing great and doing a good job but when that situation ended for Levon then uh, we approached him about being on our label and he loved the idea of that and we worked with him on some other things as well I worked with him on uh, some things that Jim Dickinson produced where Levon was the drummer just like a studio player and those were great experiences and we did become good friends Levon would come down and hang with us and and he would was kind of crazy to me is he'd drive from uh, Woodstock, New York in a Saab convertible with his drums in the car with him. He'd drive down overnight and come and work and then turn around and drive back. Uh, but I think he liked driving. <laughs> yeah. So another, you know, key player we mentioned before and is one of my uh, favorites is Eddie Hinton, who's no longer with us either. But you... He was you guys' lead guitar player in the beginning of Muscle yes. Sound, but then he also cut what, in my mind, is a classic, although maybe un underappreciated, but a very extremely dangerous album. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I see this, talking about this, I see these things happen over and over again where we'll cut a great record and then something will happen with the record company or something, and that's what happened with uh, Very Extremely Dangerous. It, it was a... a uh, on Capricorn, and as soon as they put it out, then they go out of business. And so he's got this great album that's the favorite of all the musicians, but it, it doesn't sell anything because the record company's gone out of business. But Eddie was such a uh, fantastically talented guy. He could sing, he could play the guitar, he could write songs, he could produce. Uh, he was, uh, we all thought that he was going to be the next Beatle or something. He was such a good player. Uh, he after, I guess, a couple years, he decided he didn't want to be a, the studio lead guitar player anymore for us or anybody and wanted to be an uh, artist in his own right. And uh, that's when we started working with Pete Carr and uh, uh, Wayne Perkins and some other great guitar players. 
we always missed Eddie, but uh, it was time for him to move on, I think. And we lost Eddie too soon. He got into bad health and uh, had some substance abuse problems and left us way too soon. Yeah. After Eddie died, you finished or you, you added tracks to demos he'd recorded previously with, with Johnny Sandlin. How did that record come about? Do you remember? Yeah, there's a uh, Englishman, uh, Peter Thompson, I think, yeah. uh, who was a big fan of Eddie's music and a friend of Johnny Sandlin and was a fan of our music. And he wanted to put out a lot of the demos that we had done and that Eddie had done on his own. Uh, and make them into a, a records. And uh, so he got with, with Johnny Sandlin, and some of the songs uh, I had to go back in and put a bass part on because they were just vocal and guitar demos. And others uh, he had recorded with some guys over in, in Decatur. And, uh, but he made several really good records uh, after Eddie's death of Eddie and his songs and his singing and guitar playing. Uh, all really good records and at first I think they just came out in England but I think they're available uh, around the world now. Yeah and Johnny Sandlin is somebody you worked on a lot of sessions for at his studio in Decatur too. How was working with Johnny? Well I, I started Johnny Sandlin I first met him when I was about 18 years old uh, the Mark V, which was the band that Jerry Kerrigan, Norbert Putnam, and uh, uh, David Briggs had, uh, they lost whoever was playing guitar. I think Marlon Green was one of the guitar players, but they lost a guitar player. And so they got Johnny Sandlin to come in and play guitar. And I, I saw him play, and I thought, wow, this guy, he's the loudest guitar player I've ever seen, heard. But uh, he played with them and helped them get their recordings together but he also was a drummer and a sound engineer and we started doing sessions with Johnny as a producer and an engineer he worked at Fame for a while uh, he would come to our studio and uh, produce things he was in uh, Macon producing for Capricorn and uh, produced some of the early Allman Brothers stuff uh, and the first uh, Greg Allman solo, solo album laid back so there was a connection between us and uh, Johnny, I guess, really picked up in uh, Macon. But then after the Macon thing was over, uh, he moved back to uh, Decatur and was working at Fame and in Decatur. Uh, so he became uh, somebody that I, some of my favorite re records I've played on. I've played uh, with Johnny producing and engineering. Uh, one in particular we did at... Uh, our second location of Muscle Shoals Sound, 1000 Alabama Avenue, uh, and that's the Dan Penn uh, solo album, uh, Do Right Man, I guess is the yeah. title of that. Uh, Johnny produced that and recorded that at our studio. Uh, but after that, I worked with Johnny and Decatur on uh, uh, um, Jimmy Hall, uh, Greg Allman, Bonnie Bramlett, all these great artists, and every one of them are things that I was very proud of. Jim, Johnny had the best ears as a producer I've, I've seen. And uh, it was a very small studio. When you sat in the studio, you were sitting next to the console with Johnny when he was producing. Uh, so it was a little bit different situation as far as 
you having to wear headphones and everything, but he had great ears. It always sounded so good when you'd hear the end product. Yeah. Somebody else who was part of that crew was Scott Boyer. He, Johnny produced him back in the 70s for, for Capricorn Records when he was in Cowboy. And the two of you were in the decoys together for many years. Uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about Scott and what kind of Scott meant to you as, I guess, friend and collaborator? Yeah, uh, I had Scott and uh, Tommy Talton had been in the group uh, Cowboy. And it was a, a record when I was doing uh, the Smith Perkins Smith album. That was a favorite of theirs. And we would listen to it and thought, wow, these guys are really good. Later on, I worked with Tommy Talton. Roger and I produced some sides with Tommy Talton. I thought, well, this is half a cowboy. This guy's great. Then a while after that, uh, Scott shows up with Dan Penn, and they have a group called the Convertibles. And I thought, well, this is a pretty good group here, but they're gone after a little bit. But uh, later, after that, uh, Scott and uh, Kelvin Holly and uh, Butch McDade and Johnny Sandlin on bass became the Decors. And the reason they call the band the Decors, uh, Johnny Sandlin's nickname was the Duck. And so they wanted something duck-like in the in the name. And they, you, a decoy is a a duck thing that people use when they go hunting. It's a little fake duck. And so they became the decoys. Well, the decoys started playing at a bar here in town called Union Station. And uh, I would go here and play after I'd, my sessions here in town. And I thought, wow, this band is great. Of all the bands I've heard around here, this is the first one that I would consider playing with or sitting in. And uh, it just so happened that their bass player, uh, after Johnny Sandlin left the band, they got a guy named Jimmy Clay to be their bass player. And Jimmy got a chance to go on the road with someone, and so he said, um, um, why don't you take my place for a couple of weeks with the decoys? And at that time, I didn't play live very much. I didn't know any of their songs, but I loved the band, so I got a couple work tapes of all their songs, and I made chord charts on every one of their songs, and came in to play at the Union Station one night, and Butch, the drummer, said, ha, chord charts, you'll never make it. But when we got through, he said, I played it perfectly, and I did, because my chord charts were good. And um, I spent a little time working on it, but I got it, so I, I, I did the two weeks. And then later on, when Jimmy Clay left the band, they asked if I would play, and I thought, well, why not? So that started my my career with the decors i hadn't really planned on doing that but a, a producer engineer from birmingham mark harrelson was putting together a show in birmingham with dan penn and greg allman and some of the future decoys uh with johnny sandlin uh uh and so that was my first live play and i think since uh i had played with traffic but that that and my experience with Scott and the guys got me playing with the decoys, and I've continued playing with the decoys until just recently. Scott has had got into a bad health situation and finally passed away a few months a, a few months ago, and uh, so that's 
things have changed now with the decoys. We don't really have Scott Boyer. And to me, he was the heart of the decoys in his singing and selection of songs. Uh, the rest of us are still around, and we're, I think we're all secretly hoping that Scott will come back. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, it was a very good band, very good live band, I think. Uh, probably my favorite live situation to play was with Scott and Kelvin and N.C. Thurman and lately uh, Mike Dillon, Curington on drums. Who knows? The decoys may rise again. Yeah, we'll find a way to let them rise again because the decoys, too many people around here love the decoys too much for, for it just to stop like that. But... Uh, so you got to play regularly with the decoys, and then suddenly you're back on the road with the water boys. <laughs> How did that come about? Well, I'd, it was about, I guess, 2013, 2014. I had been uh, playing sessions around town, and there were songwriter demos and, and things. It wasn't very interesting stuff that much, and I was getting a little bored. I was in my early 70s. Uh, I got a call from a lady uh, who was producing or, or, or she was managing an artist named um, Mike Scott. And uh, she booked me on a session in Nashville to record with Mike Scott. So they start sending me songs via email and I would, I would learn the songs. I thought, wow, these are pretty interesting songs. And uh, so I made myself some chord charts on these songs and go to Nashville to the sound emporium to record and when i get there it's mike scott and uh drummer uh ralph salmons and uh paul brown who was a keyboard player and i see well this is not just mike scott this is a band and i said well who what is this and they said this is the water boys and i said wow the water boys i've heard of them but i didn't know that's what i was doing but it turned out that we cut an album at, at sound emporium in nashville uh called modern blues on the water boys and I really enjoyed playing with them and enjoyed the songs. And uh, they, they said, I think just on a whim, asked if I'd be interested in playing some live shows with them. And I thought, well, why not? I'm, I'm kind of reached a place in my career where I'm not really excited that much about what I'm doing. Uh, so I agreed to go out and start playing with them. I didn't realize that when I agreed to do one or two shows that I was agreeing to do um, about two and a half years worth of shows, but I, as a result of that, uh, I played all. I played in 18 countries, uh, some of them many times, all around the world, uh, everywhere, from the Sydney Opera House in Japan to uh, uh, all over the United States, all over Europe, Great Britain, Scandinavia. It, for some reason, it seemed like they played quite a bit in Nor Norway, uh, Sweden. Uh, Spain, Portugal. I'd never been to Spain or Portugal, so I got, I got to go all these places and play with them, and it was a it was a great experience. It, I didn't really like to travel that much. It was a little too far to travel, because with most of their dates being in Europe, I'd have to go a day ahead of time to get used to the time difference, and so I was spending a lot of time sitting in airports and on airplanes and just waiting in hotels uh, to to be able to do this. Had a lot of fun, but uh, finally, uh, I guess it was uh, August 2016, 
I was in Norway and fell in my hotel room and broke my left wrist. And so I had to quit playing for three months. I was unable to play for three months. And it was at the end of the tour, so it seemed like a good time just to leave the water boys. And it was a, uh, uh, a friendly uh, me departing the band. They were ready to not spend so much money flying me around the world, and I was ready to stay home. So it was an amicable departure on my part. Uh, but we're still friends. I played on their latest record, and they're out touring with that record now. And uh, I wish them a lot of luck. I'm happy I'm not with, with them, but I enjoyed my time I spent with them. Yeah, around the same time, the Water Boys uh, came knocking. The Muscle Shoals documentary movie came out, and he's shown a spotlight on this area again. And I think, in many ways, reintroduced a lot of people to the legacy of Muscle Shoals. And it's also, I guess, open other opportunities. You've become somewhat of an ambassador and <laughs> your, your wife, Judy, is very active in promoting the area too. But what do you think was the impact of the documentary? Oh, it, it was huge. Uh, and it was at about the same time as the Waterboys thing. And it, But uh, I would go from play into Lincoln Center with uh, the Muscle Shoals guys and then getting on the plane and going to Scotland to play with the Water Boys. But the, the impact of the movie was far greater than we ever expected. It did uh, bring focus back to Muscle Shoals and the music recorded here. And uh, I think it helped a lot of people in their career, brought a lot of people back to Muscle Shoals or people who had never been to Muscle Shoals before to record and also enabled us to uh, reopen our original location, 3614 Jackson Highway, as a uh, tourist uh, destination and as also as a recording studio. And my wife and Rodney Hall and some other people in town uh, were able to get the studio back into the, the hands of the, uh, the Muscle Shoals Music Foundation. And, uh, and so now it's a not-for-profit situation. Uh, It's open to the public uh, as a tourist destination, and and we're also recording. We're still getting together on the recording, but we've we've done uh, Dan Auerbach uh, recording there. We've recorded with Donnie Fritz on his latest uh, album that is yet to come out. It's an album of uh, Arthur Alexander songs. Uh, it's it's been a great thing for the studio and also for the area in general. It's re, refocused the uh, attention of people on Muscle Shows as a place to record, and I think it's helping a lot of the younger players and producers and writers uh, get their feet in the door and get things happening around in the music business. Because uh, you you can go anywhere and say I'm from Muscle Shows, and that opens doors. Yeah. So you mentioned the next generation and Patterson, your son, has been getting more and more successful and has been successful for a long time uh, with the drive-by truckers and also as a solo man, a solo artist. Uh, Jason Isbell is somebody else that I know you, you have a you know, close personal connection. What does make you feel to see that 
the next generation or the next generations keep the music alive. It, it makes me feel great to see that because Barry has passed away. Uh, Roger and Jimmy are no longer active in the music business. I'm the only one of the original Swampers who's still active. I hate to see it all end when we stop being uh, active. Uh, Patterson uh, started the drive-by truckers with uh, Mike Cooley. Uh, they've been very popular. Jason became a member of the truckers and then left to take a solo career. He is tremendously successful. Uh, now uh, Pat Patterson's uh, solo career has taken off. He's doing uh, shows almost as big as the trucker shows. Uh, Patterson uh, was one of the people who helped Brittany Howard and the Alabama Shakes get started when they they played here for free at a. Uh, Pegasus Records, and I babysat uh, Pat's kids so he could go see them, and he came back raving about this band, about Britney and uh, the rest of them. Uh, well, now they're they're a world class artist. Uh, ben Tanner, their keyboard player, uh, uh, is a producer, and he and John Paul White of the Civil Wars uh, have gotten together and started Single Lot Records, and so they're. Uh, producing young artists as well as Donnie Fritz. Uh, it's just things are things are really happening, I think, for the younger people as well as the old guys. Um, the Since since that documentary came out, uh, everybody's working more, I think. And uh, I think it's opened the doors for Single Lot and other uh, ventures to start, uh, in, including, including Crazy Chester. He's... Uh, recording here with uh, Andreas is recording with uh, 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 Carla Russell and some other artists and so he's part of the the new Muscle Shows revival too I think. Yeah, well thank you I appreciate that. It's certainly been a uh, just a wonderful thing to be able to to work with you guys because you were just the kings of my record collection, and now <laughs> I actually got to work with you and Jamie and Clayton, and that's been real special. I mean, besides it being just the most badass rhythm section in the world. But uh, we're almost at the end here, but there's one thing I would like to ask you about, and that's you and Roger are one of the... Well, all the four of you, but especially when it comes down to like the core of the rhythm section, Roger and you have are one of the quintessential rhythm sections in an American music. What do you think made the two of you together so good? I think Roger is just a brilliant drummer. He had a, such a natural ability and also uh, uh, not only physical ability but mental ability to to play and learn songs and it was it was great for me because I had somebody to partner with as a bass player it's hard to sound bad when you're playing with Roger uh, I think I was eager uh, on my side I was I was still learning when I started working with Roger and I was eager to be able to, to uh, stand with Roger and and be a, a rhythm section and not just another bass player to play with Roger uh, and of course Barry and Jimmy are brilliant in their in their 
what they brought to the rhythm section. I don't know. I think that Roger and I just were, were friends, our friends, and uh, we, we had a connection. We had fun together when we weren't playing, and uh, we had similar interests. We liked cars and guns and women and all kinds of stuff, and so uh, uh, we were just, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't say what would make it magic other than we love working with each other, and I, I really miss him now. Uh, I'm fortunate to get to play with other drummers, but there will never be another Roger Hawkins, I don't think. Yeah, that that was kind of my follow-up question. Is when you used to such a rock next to you, and then that's not necessarily there anymore. Do you have? Are you just trying to play the same part with whoever drummer you play with, or do you feel you have to adapt? I think I've had to adapt, but I'm also been fortunate to play with some other good drummers, uh, Brian Owens, uh, Owen Hale, Milton Sledge. Uh, I've gotten to play with a lot of good drummers, also Steve Jordan and uh, a few others. But uh, I uh, playing with with and uh, Mike Dillon with the decors. But I uh, I think. Uh, I think I I do adapt to whatever drummer I'm working with, and and uh, if it's a good drummer, then I'm going to sound good too. And and I'm fortunate to get to play with a lot of good drummers, and uh, that's all I know. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how you said, you know, playing with such a good drummer as Roger, that it kind of, I'm not necessarily saying it makes your job easy, but it's probably easier to shine when you can count on that and i had liam williams the drummer i work with a lot on the podcast and i kind of ask him the same questions like what is it with david and he kind of feels the same about you when he plays with you it's like he said it's it's almost like my job has never been as easy as playing with david hoop because he's just there where he needs to be and yeah, Lynn is a great drummer. I love getting to work with Lynn, and uh, he is absolutely at the top of my list of guys to play with. Um, he 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 too. He's probably one of the easier drummers to work with. He 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 strikes a great groove for one thing, but you know he's going to be there. You don't wonder what he's going to do. He's he's very solid, and you know he's going to be there. He's 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 one of my favorites. Yeah, and you mentioned that you just did some sessions with Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. You work with Sheryl Crow. You're still very much active and and youthful. I'm, I'm just, you're an inspiration to all of us. You're still going at this amazing pace. <laughs> well, you might not feel the same, but that's what it appears yeah, to well, us. Well, I, I love doing it. I, mean, I think that's the, the key. If you love what you're doing, why stop? I mean, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna t keep doing this just as long as I'm physically able, and I hope that's gonna be a long time because it's still fun to me. I still get excited on a recording session, and I love to make great music, and I can't wait to hear the playback and see what's happening on on what we're doing. I, that's always that's where I, that's where I got my thrill the first time, and I, that's still where I get my thrill is to go into the control room and hear what we've recorded, and uh, you know if it's not right make it right I, I, that's that's the the fun to me and in, in doing all this yeah well 
Thank you so much for, for spending the last hour with me and sharing all your wonderful stories. I really appreciate your time and your friendship. And I wish you just the best of luck, health, and a long bass playing <laughs> future. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks, Andreas. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, David. This was the 30th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Nuthouse Recording Studio in Sheffield, Alabama. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out some of our previous episodes, including interviews with Donnie Fritz, Mickey Buckins, Dickie Lee, Billy Swan, Buzz Kaysen, and many others. If you'd like to find out more about Crazy Chester Records or the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, please check out our website at crazychesterrecords.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.